Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the U.S., the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Today, we're speaking with Penny Lacasso, the life coach, happiness guru, corporate happiness consultant, and author of Hacking Happiness. In this episode, Penny will explain the three ingredients needed for a happy life, how micro-bravery can change your life, and taking action to gain clarity. So if your 2020 has been a bit of a shit show and you need some helpful advice on how to get back on track, this episode is for you. Additionally, we'd like to dedicate this episode to a personal hero of ours and of women everywhere, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth, thank you for dedicating your life to achieving equality for women and improving the lives of those who faced oppression. We will forever be indebted to you. Rest in peace, Notorious RBG. Hi, Penny. How are you? Very well, ladies. How are you? Oh, so good. So good to have you on the show. We're so happy to have you. I am so fascinated with what you do. Um... (laughs) <laughs> it's, I really am. I So the first time I ever even thought about my personal happiness and the idea of changing your your mind about your own happiness was in 2012. I don't do you know who Stefan Sagmeister is? Oh, no. It sounds familiar, though. So tell me. Yeah, he is a an agency owner in New York City. Um, and he's really famous. He was um, he did this. Um, project he called the happiness project you should definitely look it up if you haven't heard of it yet Mm. but this was like back in 2012 and he researched happiness and he did this he kind of took this sabbatical and did all these crazy things and then just kind of um, you know traveled around the United States talking about happiness but I when this happened I was 28 years old and going through a really bad divorce so I remember it hitting me you know, really hard wow. thinking this is something that you need to think about actively every day. Yeah. So anyway, I'm that fascinated with what you do. So please tell us about it. Tell us all about you. Well, I'll definitely look him up. That's the first thing I'll do. I'm pretty sure I've heard <laughs> of the concept of yeah. what it was, of the name. Yeah. I'll so send tell it to you, you. Tell you what I do. Please. Is that what you want? Please. Well, <laughs> I'd actually, yeah, tell us what you do and also kind of how you got there. We'd yeah. love to know about your career so far. Please. Yeah. So what do I do? I help individuals and organizations. I do a lot of work with large organizations. I help them define happiness on their terms. And then I help them develop simple practices that they can bring into the everyday to inject more joy more often. That's basically because I look at happiness. I say it is I think, unfortunately, we've been sold this idea that happiness is an is an end goal. It's like mm-hmm. when I do X, Y, and Z, I will be happy. Yes. But it's bullshit. It um, is. Like, can I swear? <laughs> yes, please um, do. <laughs> that makes me happy. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's bullshit because the reality is, is I believe happiness is a way of being. It's a way of showing up in the everyday from a mindset and a behaviour perspective. And whilst you can't control everything in life, you can control your mindset and your behaviour. Yes. And if you look at happiness as a practice and as a way of being and leverage your mindset and behavior, I'll guarantee you, you'll have 
more happiness more often. Yes, that's beautiful. Okay, so how did you arrive at this wisdom? Please tell us. <laughs> how did you become a <laughs> Because I made myself my own my own biggest guinea pig. Um, okay. So <laughs> I call myself an imperfect experimenter. And um, six years ago, if you had have called me that, I would have probably sworn at you. I don't experiment. <laughs> I'm far from imperfect. <laughs> Back then I was a perfectionist. So six years ago uh, was 2000 and, oh gosh, 12, does that sound? No, 2014. Yeah. yeah. Um, and basically I was 39 years old and had everything I was told would make me happy. So, yes. you know, I worked really hard for 20 years and, you know, I'd, um, I got the, the executive job um, in the global corporation and yeah. was on a career trajectory I um, had, you know, the white picket fence and the beautiful house and the Euro car in the driveway and I could travel whenever I wanted to. And, mm. you know, from the outside looking in, it was perfect. Yeah. But I was sitting there having ticked all those boxes and um, I was like, I wasn't depressed or anything, but I was sitting there going, is this it? I'm mm. not fulfilled. Yes. Like I, I thought this was it, you know, this was the pinnacle. And what I did was something I'd never done in 39 years. I asked myself, what does success slash happiness look like for me on my terms? Mm. And it was a really interesting question to ask because I, up until that point I thought I was somewhat intelligent and I was like, how is it I've never asked myself this until the age of 39 mm. and how is it I never realised that what I'd created was someone else's definition of success, not my own. And yeah. I say success slash happiness because I don't think you can be successful unless you are happy. Mm. Interesting. And so when I asked that, there was three things, three, four things that came to my mind and it was Happiness for me was found in human connection. It was found in positively impacting the lives of others. It was found in being um, present and in a moment and in sharing experiences. Okay. And when I worked that, I was like, right, they're all the things that I'm sidelining in pursuit of, you know, my career. So I went, I'm going to realign my whole life to bring more of the things that make me happy into my everyday. And that was when I turned my whole life upside down. So how did you turn your life upside down? So within a seven-month period after that kind of epiphany, I uh, left a 16-year career as an executive in a global giant at the top of my game as a female with high potential, which always love that term because I'm yet to meet one with no potential. Um, <laughs> like I just, I think that in itself is really interesting that that's a term they use. Um, yeah. I relocated my family from Perth back to Melbourne, which is like moving from New York to LA. Mm. I left an 18 year relationship and I started my own purpose-driven company with the sole intent of helping other people define their happiness and hack it. Holy shit. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit. Yeah. <laughs> wow, a you best. really got after it. I'm quite impressed, actually. I'm, I'm. I always say the only thing that didn't change was my son at the time. Like that was the only thing that stayed constant, and he yeah. was four. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. I think something. Ha so I'm 36 and a half right now. I think something happens in your late 30s to women. Like you get this wisdom. You just kind of get this. If you're not in a situation that you love, you're like, okay, screw this. I, what's next for me? It's kind of this beautiful, empowering, I don't know, hmm. age. I completely <laughs> agree with you. And what's there's two things that's, that, that have been really interesting because like you guys, my audience is predominantly females. You know, they're predominantly um 
professionals and mothers and they're aged between 28 and 55. And um, what I notice in the, like I've had the fortune, good fortune of working with these women all around the world and thousands of them. And what I notice is that me, women seem to have this innate desire to constantly want to develop themselves, mm. not from just a career perspective, from a personal growth perspective, more so, I'm not saying men don't, yeah. But women seem to want it more and they do it more often. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Is it because we feel like we're never good? And I mean, is it, you know, I have this thing with self-optimization, oh. right? It's like you always want to, like, I went back and got my master's. I went back to school at like 33. I, you know, even though I had like however many years, dozen years in the industry, I still felt I needed more. It's like, mm. when am I enough? <laughs> when am oh. I just enough? Is yeah. that a happiness thing? I mean, what is that? What do you think? Well, that is, oh gosh, that's such a good question. Mm. You're enough when you give yourself permission to be enough. Right. I think the thing, the other thing I observe and don't, I'm not sitting here preaching from the mountaintop, I can tell you, because I am, like I said, I am still my own experiment in this space. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I still carry self-doubt. I still question myself. I still question, you know, whether I'm worthy. I've been doing this whole self-development piece around um, limiting beliefs and shadows and how that holds you back. Mm. And I think um, you're enough when you allow yourself to be enough. The only person uh, more often than not that is holding you back from, you know, what you want um, in your life is you. Mm. Your beliefs, your thoughts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we just have so much potential and so often um, we don't, we just don't back ourselves. We don't believe we're good enough. We don't believe, a lot of us don't believe we're deserving of happiness. Like so many women say, I'll, I'll sort myself out, you know, when I've made my kids happy or my husband's happy. Right. And I just sit there and go, you can't, you can't help them unless you prioritise yourself first. And, right. you know, I often think happiness is selfish in terms of, not in a negative way, in terms of you have to, be selfish and prioritize yourself if that's how you define selfishness right in yes. order to realize happiness because if you don't prioritize yourself i'll guarantee you no one else ever will right gosh that's beautiful where do you think this kind of notion of perpetual unhappiness comes from especially mm. with corporate <laughs> it seems like i don't know is it from advertising that we're served as like just growing up that you just always strive to have material things right that... like you need to be skinnier you need to be more successful you yeah. need to be this you need to be that is it our media what is it i think we are looking for happiness externally when the reality is you have everything you need within which is kind of you know mm. i'm not the first person to say that i think we're looking for happiness in the wrong places and yeah. i think and and often like it's external stuff and when my through the work that i do personally for myself and with with clients mm. when you get people to actually look within and see what they've got to work with within rather than trying to find external um, validation of their happiness, that's when it starts to, to get realised. Mm. Um, and when you say, is it the media? Um, is it, you know what I think drives a lot of our perpetual unhappiness, what especially for professionals? Yeah. I believe productivity has become our disease. Yes. <laughs> I agree. 
Wow. Yeah, and so I say, you know, I'm a big fan of busy equals bullshit. Busy as a word has no meaning whatsoever mm. and it is more often not than not code for something else. Right. And what it's code for is really sad. It's things like loneliness, it's anxiety, it's FOMO, um, it's just I'm distracted, you know. So product and the reason we're busy is because we value as a society now productivity. Right. If I can squeeze more into my day, even though I've got no time left, mm-hmm. I'll be more productive and more efficient and therefore I'll be more successful like the people I see on Instagram because I can see them, they're online all day. So productivity has become the disease and the sad thing is I honestly believe that the less you do that, the less you do that is more intentional mm-hmm. yeah, and creates more space for being yeah. and for thinking Mm-hmm. And for your brain to refresh itself, the one, the happier you'll be, but two, productivity will be a byproduct of that. You will be more productive from doing less work that is more intentional. Mm-hmm. We are exhausted wow. and our brains are not refreshing. And the science shows it time and time again. You can look at like there's loads of neuroscience. Your brain does its best work in boredom and in stillness. And ask yourself <laughs> how often other than when you are in the shower does that occur in this day and age? Yeah. And you're, so if we're not allowing ourselves to be in stillness or boredom every day, our brain is not able to recharge itself and it can't do its best work. It doesn't go into what's called um, default network mode. Yeah. which is where it solves the hard problems. Yeah, so that is so happens. true. You need space. You need Your brain needs space to make smart decisions and be creative and, you know, when you're not trying yeah, to. We don't value, we don't value, um, think about it, right? We, you, every, every company's like, we've got to be more productive. How do we mm. be more productive so mm. we can get more output? Um, what companies do you hear say, we actually, as a priority, we value thinking. Mm-hmm. We value deep focused thinking we value um, creativity and we incentivize people to do those two things mm. wow so i'll you, bet you if we did it would change things yeah <laughs> you've worked with some pretty major brands like lululemon salesforce bloomberg coca-cola just is this is what is this what you're teaching them are yeah. you teaching them how to give people more space or what are you doing with these brands yeah so um I came up with a methodology about two and a half years ago. Um, And so the output of what I teach is hacking happiness. So my mission is to teach 10 million humans by 2025 how to intentionally adapt in order to future-proof happiness. Okay. And so whilst the outcome I'm seeking is hacking happiness, the way in which I solve problems for corporations is through teaching what I call intentional adaptability. Okay. And so... This is basically, you know, it's a framework for you being able to, well, we define intentional adaptability as your um, the level of skill you have in being able to make intentional change in a complex and uncertain environment that's evolving at speed, hmm. which Could... is pretty much where we're at now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Did you have a question? I thought you were... No, I just, I want you to expand on it. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, and, and the, the the model and the, the fundamentals of it is all on the website if people are interested. And there's also a, an assessment for free on the website because people love this stuff. But basically, intentional adaptability, I believe, is made up of three core skills. And if you focus on harnessing the, these three core skills, your IAQ, your intentional adaptability quotient, or the measure of how intentionally adaptable you are, mm-hmm. will increase. 
place. Okay. And I'll guarantee you that if you have a higher intentional adaptability quotient, you will be more satisfied in your life more often. So it comprises three skills. The first skill we teach in corporations is focus. How do you now focus in a world that is designed to distract you? Okay. And create the space for more of what matters. So people constantly tell me they are distracted. They don't feel in control of where their mind or their time goes anymore. Mm. And the other thing I constantly get asked is how do I create space? And yet Mm. time, time is ours. Right. So that's the first thing, focus. The second thing we teach people is courage. Mm. And so this is about how do you actually reshape your mindset to actually look at fear and failure as two of the biggest levers you have to shape the change that you want for yourself and the world around you. Mm. So we teach people how to amplify their courage. And then the third component is curiosity, which is an innately human um, quality. Mm-hmm. It is something we are born with. But unfortunately, through the constructs that we have pushed what are now adults through, we significantly diminish curiosity over time. Mm-hmm. And we don't value it and we don't incentivize it. Mm-hmm. And so we teach people curiosity as a state of being, as a way of showing up in the everyday. We teach them how to ask curious questions and how to have curious conversations where they're actually listening to what the other person is saying mm-hmm. rather than sitting there thinking about what they want to say next. Yeah, and being mm-hmm. present. How do you, okay, so when you meet someone who you're coaching, right, how do mm. you kind of gauge the level because these these things are different each of these quotients are different for every single person naturally and then through cultural conditioning and how do you gauge what they need to focus on and and how they need to build yeah well there's two components the first thing that we do um, is we get them to take the hacking happy assessment which basically assesses those three three key skills Mm -hmm. Um, and a couple of others that we're really interested in as well like you know willingness to experiment um, how humanly connected people are, how often they create the space to reflect, mm. um, things like that. So the first thing we do is we get them to do the assessment and the assessment is something that we created um, with an org psych company to make sure that we were you know, getting statistically sound data so that we could actually use that to reinforce and further build out the model to have greater impact and make more lives um, hopefully more fulfilling. So the first thing is do the assessment and that what that assesses, it's really holding the mirror up to your mindset and your behaviour around how you view, view focus, courage and curiosity and the frequency in which you undertake certain behaviours that would demonstrate that you are fully skilled in that space. Gotcha. So frequency of behaviour, and again, this is, comes back to what I was saying at the start, it's, you know, happiness is not an end state. I actually think happiness is a practice Mm. it's like yoga you got to get on the mat every single day and intentional adaptability is exactly that to build these skills every day you know we should be looking at something that builds where our you know where our opportunity lies in terms of focus courage and curiosity Hmm. do you think that success is a journey as well and that success isn't necessarily an end goal well, it depends on how you define success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed with success is like you keep redefining it. If you are, I guess, a naturally curious person, if, if that quotient is already high with you, mm. a lot of people keep redefining it their whole lives yeah. and it changes as you go through different stages. I don't know. Would you say that's true? I think if you're constantly looking to grow and evolve, then things will always change. Yeah. And, you, and you'll and you adapt, you know, accordingly. So, yeah, it's interesting because I've kind of, 
I don't know whether it's where I'm at now. Um, I mean, I always have goals and I think I always feel like goals might be more attached to success because mm. success feels like for me when I think of success, often it's motivated by financial gain and having certain things. Mm. For me now what I do is I sort of say, well, what would, if I could have the ideal day every day, you know, realistically, what would that day look like? What thing, How would I start the day? What would be the sort of things that I would love to do in that day? Who would I be with? Who yeah. would I work with? Yeah. How would I end the day? And so a lot of the work that I do with clients is really around saying to them, you know, what would that ideal day look like? Mm. Because then that enables us to say, well, if that's what you want it to look like, what's the current state? And therefore, what's the gap and the opportunity that exists between the two? And what can we do in terms of really simple bite-sized practices right now that will help you start to step closer to where you want to be? Mm. So everything is in bite-sized pieces because yeah. everything is an experiment. It's like you want to try it on and see how it feels. Yeah, yeah. And um, and everyone's journey is different. So that's kind of that's a basis of how we play. So I'm picturing my ideal day and it doesn't involve <laughs> being at work. So how do you teach people to be happy in their job? So for example, there's a lot of people listening who are founders, but there's probably also some women listening that are in a corporate job at the moment and maybe deciding between continuing that or starting a business and don't know if that's the right track. Do you believe that you can be happy in a corporate job? Well, or ba just balance happiness with responsibility. I think yeah. that's really what you're talking about. Yeah. Because there's got to be both, right? Yeah. Like not every day is Absolutely. like a holiday. Like yeah. I'm on a beach right now in my ideal day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and that's the thing. That's why I say within reason, yeah. So what would the ideal day look like if you could service your basic human needs? Because mm -hmm. they have to be met. Mm -hmm. Because if your basic human needs of shelter, water, air um, and safety are not met mm -hmm. you can't actually well that's surviving right so you've yeah. got to meet your survival needs before you actually look at amplifying how you thrive yeah I was gonna say I actually felt that during the like March April period of COVID when uh. we everyone was so anxious and stressed about what was happening I felt like my basic kind of survival needs weren't being met with my safety needs so I felt it quite hard to concentrate and be mm. creative in that time mm. That's exactly what has happened. So, mm. and, you know, being in Melbourne when, it, you know, we've been locked down since March pretty much. Mm. Um, yeah, the the women listening from the States are in the same boat that you are, a lot of them, mm. Penny. A, the, a lot ah. of the States has been locked down or it's been released. Like people are allowed to go places, but it's not actually safe. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah a lot of people are feeling that. Yeah, so I spoke to a good friend of mine about this in the early days and, and she's a behavioural scientist, you know, she's got like eight degrees, she's phenomenal mm, yeah. and she has a lot of cold case stuff in the US for the, the crime um, department over there and she was saying to me that basically when we went into lockdown, your freedom is taken away. So you said you felt like your safety was compromised yeah. but a lot of people felt, I think, didn't realise it but your subconsciously, your freedom has been taken away. Taken away. So, in terms of how your brain responds to that, it's no different to a prisoner in isolation. Wow, was what she was saying to me, and that is why I think so many people struggle to get out of bed in the morning. Or you know, they say it was hard enough to just get one thing done during the day. Yeah, 
because your brain is doing stuff that you've never had it do before and it's responding to an environment that you've never come across that's so foreign Mm. and so restrictive and like you say it strips away your basic human needs yeah it really did (laughs) so your original question though was how do I help someone be happy can you be happy in the corporate job yeah and the answer is you can be happy anywhere Mm. if if happiness (laughs) is a state of being you choose your mindset you choose your behavior and if you choose those things and you show up in that environment day in day out and you're finding you're miserable then I would be saying is that the right job for you Mm -hmm. is there another job that would be better to uh, better align to the things that you enjoy doing on a daily basis Mm. Um, because what I see is a lot of people in the professional world staying in jobs that they despise because they're tied to what I term golden handcuffs. They believe that they need a certain amount of money to be happy in life. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I've just written about, I've just published my first book and I write about it in there. There's, there's so much research that proves that once you earn over a certain amount of money, you don't get any happier. Right. Yeah. What, What is that figure? (laughs) <laughs> how much it's money is you, that <laughs> us seventy thousand dollars a year mm. huh. and so i think that what happens is we earn more money and then we buy more things and a lot of those things are things that you know they we think they're going to bring us happiness but again they're all material it's all external stuff yeah and so all of that that stuff that you're buying that money that you're accumulating you know that that ladder that success that you're um you're getting what i find is it often comes at the at the compromise from what people tell me at the compromise of the things that bring people joy so they are sacrificing their happiness yeah yeah i think like in the states that's there's a lot of consumerism right it's it and i grew up there it's a lot of okay get a bigger house get more things afford these louboutin shoes for yourself like it's like all of this it's like the showmanship it's kind of like the instagram like Mm the um, kind of veneer of happiness. And I saw this meme the other day um, talking about how we were the saddest generation with the happiest photos. Oh, gosh. And I think that that... Wow. Yeah, it's because everybody's putting all of this effort into looking happy and, like, looking good and, like, chasing after these societally accepted benchmarks of what should create happiness. Mm -hmm. But there's so many people that are secretly not happy. But I'm exhausted at the thought of it. <laughs> it's You're so lucky you're not a millennial, Penny, honestly. <laughs> oh, you know, it's so funny because um, my boyfriend is, so he's nine years younger than me. Mm. And the conversations we have around how we see the world differently because we were born, you know, in a different generation yeah, um, are fascinating. And I often say I am extremely grateful that I did not grow up as a child with an iPad or technology yeah. because I watch my 10-year-old and also I've done a lot of research in this space long before the movie that's just come out, Social Dilemma, <laughs> became yeah. a thing. Um, and and I can tell it's it's disturbing. It is extremely disturbing and it's created, you know, it's, it's part of the reason why we have a mental health epidemic. 
Well, it's a huge contributor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my so I'm an older millennial, right? I was born in 1984, so like one of the first years to be considered millennial. And then my um, fiance was born in 1990. And even in those six years, right, like we barely had the internet in high school. Yeah. And like Facebook was invented. Mark Zuckerberg is my age, right? So we didn't have like social media pressure really until like after just after college. Mm -hmm. Um, so just, or university rather. Um, so it's, it's interesting, even the older millennials versus the younger millennials and like how happiness is represented, um, for our generation. It's just, it's fascinating. I mean, we could go in and talk about it forever and how does it really help our happiness or, you know, is the illusion of happiness actually hurting us? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because I did an experiment recently um because i've had to homeschool my 10 year old mm. and i've been meaning to work out how to whether i ride or whether i do a podcast or what i do about it but what happened was um he left his ipad all of his schoolings on the ipad mm-hmm. and he's in grade four and he left his ipad at his dad's and we're an hour away from his dad's mm-hmm. on a, a, a rural property at the moment and we got here and he said i've left my ipad we'll have to go back and get it and i said no you know what we're gonna do the school of mum this week yeah and we're gonna <laughs> learn about stuff on the farm Hmm. and we're just going to see where it goes. And um, we developed up a program, and I thought it was pretty balanced in terms of science, you know, maths. He had to research um, animals and nature around the farm. Um, he was doing an hour and a half of physical education a day. Like, we'd take him hiking through the bush. That's brilliant. His behaviour, and, I mean, I'm pretty tight on the old iPad because I know what devices do. Hmm. His behaviour in that week compared to the week when he's homeschooling on the iPad he was, it was like fundamentally different. It was so significant. Wow. And I actually think the biggest indictment on us at the moment is the fact that we are saying that kids need iPads at the age of eight in schools to learn. I actually think it is quite the opposite. I actually think it, it's not helpful for their learning and it's certainly not helpful for their behaviour mm. and the way that they behave with their parents at all. So many distractions. Yeah. On there well, as and well. what is that doing to their um, intentional adaptability quotient, as you've coined it? If they are always entertained, and they're trying to foster that sense of curiosity, you know, don't you foster that sense by looking around? <laughs> you mm. know, like being in tune with the world. It's it just seems um, quite detrimental. Well, Cal Newport wrote about it in his book, Deep Work, where he had done research and basically was saying that we had wired a whole generation to operate in nothing but a constant state of distraction. Mm. So the brains of that generation are actually wired differently because they know no different than always being distracted. Wow. They also, um, you know, their preferred mode of communication is through technology. So the level at which they humanly can connect with one another is fundamentally different from any other generation that's gone before them. And you think about it, there's so many nuances in terms of skill building, the more often you humanly connect with other people, be it random strangers or people that you know, Mm. in terms of um, how you develop conversations, how you have difficult conversations, Mm. how you problem solve, um, how you shift your perspective, all of those things. Um, So, yeah, more distracted, less humanly connected, the other thing that I don't like is that every problem can be solved instantly and without 
hard cognition in your brain. Right. And that is also proven to be a huge problem because what happens is if every question you can get an answer to instantaneously, to your point earlier about dopamine hits, Mm. if you can't find the answer to something, you know, within a matter of seconds because Google for some reason can't find it, you have no interest in it. (laughs) You know, you lose interest. So you don't solve hard problems the way people used to, nor do you have a desire to. Right, because your brain isn't used to working that hard. (laughs) It's just not. Well, it's also not used to having to find answers anywhere other than with Google. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there are two other things, not just with children today, but with all of us. It's like this abundance of choice, which is actually making us less happy. It's like, um, you know, there's always something better out there. It's like swipe culture, you know, and that's quite dangerous. It's rather than working on the hard problems or like fixing relationships or situations or thinking laterally about how to make things better, we just throw things away and try to replace them, whether it be people in our relationships with Mm. other people or items. Like we don't like sew the strap on our shirt because we can can just go to H&M and get another Mm -hmm. cami for like $12. It's like um, we've got this like throwaway culture or like abundance of choice culture which Mm. is really detrimental to our personal happiness kind of all part of materialism as well i guess yeah consumerism Mm. yeah but there's definitely so what you said about too much choice again there's there's research around this which is fascinating and i think the number was something like once you get to more than six choices on something your brain goes into overload and it actually stifles Mm. your ability to make choice Wow. That's why there's menus at restaurants that have too many items. Yeah. (laughs) That's why the guys I used to date were so confused because there were just so many other women out there that they were texting. (laughs) (laughs) They just couldn't. These damn millennial men. I just don't. (laughs) Couldn't make a decision. Right. (laughs) Right. Hey, Penny, I'd love to know, um, you know, this hacking happy You've, you've developed the formula two years ago. What Was it two and a half years ago that you said? I'd love yeah, to know yeah. how you kind of landed your first clients. Um, and, and oh, yeah. How, you, how did you make this a business? Obviously, yeah. you're brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, else, how else did you turn this into a business? It's mm, a really good question. Um, I started. Nice. <laughs> and, Fair enough. But and, and this is the thing, right? So so many people say to me, I'd love to start a business, I'd love to do what like what you've done, not as in hacking happiness, but you know, go with a dream and, and just chase it. Mm-hmm. And but they're like, you know, I'm not sure what the right path is yet and I'm not sure the steps to get there. So I'm you know, I'm still working all of that out. And I just think that what happens is especially again with women that I see is that people are waiting for this perfect plan to appear before they take any action. Mm. And the reality is the the way I, I learned to trust that the action would breed the clarity. Okay. As long as I was stepping forward, yeah, closer to those four things that I mentioned that make me happier, it didn't matter what action I took. Wow. What mattered was that I took action and that I was making progress. Even if I failed, it didn't matter because it was like a stepping stone to where I was meant to be. Mm. And so where I started was I've got, I was like, well, I've got 20 years of experience in large-scale change management. I love human beings. I love helping people realise potential. Um, How can I use that in the direction that I want my life to go? And so it was really around, around, you know, like how can I 
use the things that I love doing to create a career that basically allows me to do the things that light me up every day in my work. Wow. And when I couldn't find it, I made it up. And the way I made it up was... <laughs> I love that. It took... Well, but, and so I say, that's why you've never heard of a happiness hacker. I always claim to be the world's first because if you can't see it, what a beautiful opportunity to create it. Mm. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And basically it has been messy, uncomfortable, rewarding and magical and I wouldn't have it any other way, but that is exactly what, you know, intentionally adapting is. It's leaning into into the discomfort because you know that growth occurs in pain, in the uncomfortable, yeah. not in the comfort. Yeah. And from the learnings from mistakes and stuff. Yeah. I mean, what was what was your biggest mistake or biggest learning that you've made since starting Hacking Happy? It's so interesting because I don't think, if, if, again, if you had have said to me seven years ago when I was in corporate, um, talked about mistakes, I would have been terrified. Mm. But now I don't um, because, you know, gosh, if you made a mistake, it was not good. It was like a blame game thing. Right. Whereas now I don't, I actually don't, when you say mistakes, I'm like, I'm like it's not even a word mm. in my vocab because wow. I don't. I don't look, like I couldn't look back and say I've made this mistake and I've made that mistake. I'm like. It's more of a what have I learnt on the journey and how have I applied that learning to be a little bit better than what I was before. Yeah. Yeah. And so the probably a couple of things. Well, one is you have so much more potential than what you realise. Yet I would never have imagined that I could do what I have done six years ago. Mm. And the way that you realise that potential that you don't even know that you have is by doing things that make you uncomfortable every day. So people always talk about this idea of getting comfortable with discomfort. Yeah. And I'm like, that's great, but tell me what that actually means. Like, what do I have to do? Because people want the how. Yeah. They know what they have to change. They just don't know how to change. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to, for me, the learning is get comfortable with discomfort. The way to do that is through a small practice called micro-bravery. And micro-bravery is doing one small thing every day that scares you. Don't mm. look at what would scare someone else. It's relative to you because you're building your resilience muscle. You're building your courage. And as long as you are getting better, that is all that matters. Stop looking at everybody else. Yeah. But yeah, so I would say the greatest learning is that fear absolutely is your future and resisting it and avoiding it when it's not life-threatening is absolutely crazy because I'll guarantee you your happiness is found at the intersection of what you've longed for but what you've avoided wow. and what sits behind that avoidance is fear. Yeah. Fear of the unknown. Is beautiful. You're basically roomy right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're like roomy for modern women. Oh, <laughs> uh, I love roomy. I read a lot of stuff around stoicism. So that's, that's a compliment. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> I want to give you one more compliment actually. And it has nothing to do with hacking. Well, it does have something to do with hacking happy. So you did a keynote oh. in your <laughs> swimsuit. Yeah. And I <laughs> freaking love it. So tell me why you did that. And it's, I mean, I, I saw the photo of it. You look absolutely gorgeous, but please oh. tell me, please tell me why you did that and, and why it meant something to you. Yeah, and see, this it comes back to what we were just saying, right? This was the moment where I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go all in on fear, mm. and um, and I'm gonna see where it takes me. And that's why I say you have no idea what you're capable of and how magical it can be. So, I was asked. It must have been nearly 
three and a half years ago now, I was asked to speak at a conference, a professional conference for professional women. Um, there was a, about 150 women in the audience. And they said, we want you to come and talk about tactics for happy change. Mm. And the lineup of speakers was phenomenal. A lot of amazing women that I knew. Um, they put me on after lunch, which is like the graveyard shift, and they were serving wine. I'm like, how am I going to stand out <laughs> and get my message across? But equally, how am I going to keep them awake? And I had um, I had one of those light bulb moments at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I woke up and I was like, that's it. And I was like, so I, I got on the stage um and I had on a bohemian wraparound dress and I undid the dress and I dropped it to the floor and I said, love me or hate me, you will not forget me. And if there is only <laughs> one thing that you take away from today, it is that happy change is found when you learn to get comfortable in discomfort. And I can honestly fucking tell you, it does not get any more uncomfortable than this. <laughs> oh, my and, God. <laughs> and see, the That's thing amazing. was, I had a... I had a body built for comfort, not for modeling. I was 40, <laughs> oh, 41 stop. years old. You know old. what? I look at this photo and I'm like, she looks pretty damn good. 41, you're really <laughs> rocking it. But we're all our <laughs> own worst critic. That's yeah. the thing is I I look at, you know, I'm actually four months pregnant with my third child right now. But um, I look at looked at myself in a bikini the other day and I was like, oh, my God, I look hideous. Oh, and then I walked oh. to the Uber just now to... to you know, film or record this podcast, and Sylvie, my co-host, is saying, "You look beautiful. You look like one of those model pregnancy mums." And I'm like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" But we are all so critical of ourselves. Yeah, that's why I did it though, because I knew, and that's why I say it was that light bulb moment. As a woman who's always suffered with her body image, even though yeah. I come across extremely confident, right? I've always suffered from body image issues. I knew there wouldn't be a woman in that room, be she tiny or curvaceous that couldn't relate to how uncomfortable that was because yeah. most of us don't like our bodies. Yeah. And that was why I got a standing ovation before I'd even started. Like oh. it just connected in a way that was, and then, you know, it went nuts. So it um, went viral oh, God, on LinkedIn, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, it went all around the world. It started a movement. It was published oh. in newspapers all around the world. Like it was nuts. But again, that was never the intent. And it provided so many opportunities for me and it inspired so many other people to lean in or to give themselves permission to lean into fear mm. and i was really grateful for that but it was uh, you know unintended consequence yeah wow that is amazing very inspired either that or crazy well, <laughs> one or the other sometimes crazy and inspire go hand in hand <laughs> um, you're right I love yeah. so what's the future what does uh the future of hack hacking happy look like well, again, like if you had a, I don't, it's, um, what does it look like? You know, I said to my mum not so long ago, if, no, we were sitting over my kitchen bench, it was about 10 o'clock at night, I had a glass of wine, I said to her, know that if I die tomorrow, I die completely happy. I've done all the things that I wanted to do up to this point in my life. Mm. And I feel completely content with how I live every day at the moment. And mm. I just thought, what a, you know, like, so I feel like there's always things that can be better, you know, um, but I feel completely content and I feel like I'm living a life truly in alignment and that, you know, that's an absolute gift. But then, you know, there's a, like I sold the rights to my book um, two months ago amidst the crazy of COVID, which I never even thought was even, I hadn't even considered this as something. And now we're basically um, in the process of getting funding to create a documentary series. Um, wow. with for example, like a Netflix or something like that. So all around hacking happiness and being adaptable. 
because the timing just feels so right. So um, I'm hoping that it's the TV series, but again, never saw that in my future. Um, I'm hoping that we develop, we've started to develop out all of our programming online. And so we're gradually building that out. And that means that I get to work with people all around the world that have been reaching out to me for ages that couldn't previously work with me directly because I was pretty much on the speaking circuit, traveling the world and working in large corporations. So I didn't have a way to work with individuals. And um, I've just published my first book. So that's kind of exciting because that's going gangbusters. And, um, awesome. you know, it, um, it's really nice when people buy, yeah. buy your book because you sit there yeah. and you write it and you never sort of think about the end. But the fact that that book is, you know, is helping um, positively impact people's lives. I mean, that for me is enough, I think, at the moment. You know, anything else I kind of say is a bonus. Yeah. Well, you've done pretty well, girl. <laughs> <laughs> You've done some good stuff. Um, so if people want to either um, be coached by you. Buy the book. Hi, buy the book <laughs> um, or hire you for corporate coaching or something like that, where can they find you? Where are all the places they can connect with you? Yeah, so look, the website is kind of the central resource with everything on it. Mm -hmm. um, so hackinghappy.co. Um, I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, sort of predominantly my audience is there. So you can find me there, Penny Lacasso. Mm. Um, and then we have a really beautiful Facebook group that's really taken off since the book launched called the Hacking Happy Collective. And we do a lot of live streams and fun stuff in there for people who really want to work their happiness practice. So if people are interested in joining that group, feel free to just find it in Facebook and uh, you'll find us on Instagram as well. But they're all the, the spaces joining now yeah <laughs> sent the request as you were talking beautiful ah. <laughs> ah, thanks so much it was amazing having you on and so so good to meet you you're so inspiring to me thank you so much for your time thank you so much oh you guys are lovely thank you it's been an absolute joy oh, have a good one penny you too ladies this podcast was brought to you by invoice to go we're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere, at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current US pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.